Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Zivi-verse, or really, the LA Times called it the Zivi-verse, and we're going with it. Go to ZiviOwens.com to learn more, and follow me on Instagram at ZiviOwens. Today's episode is about a brilliant life, my mother's inspiring true story of surviving the Holocaust by Rochelle Unreich. Rochelle has been a journalist for almost 38 years, writing for publications including Harper's Bazaar, Elle, and Rolling Stone. She lives in Melbourne, Australia, but spent seven years in the U.S. completing her law degree at UCLA. A Brilliant Life was the subject of an eight-imprint auction in Australia and is now published in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the U.K., and South Africa. It is her first book. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your absolutely beautiful, heartbreaking, inspiring, all of it, amazing book, A Brilliant Life, about my mother's inspiring story of surviving the Holocaust. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I must say you have quite a fan club. I feel like so many people <laughs> we have in common have reached out to say, oh, yeah, I'm so glad you're having her when I posted the picture and lots of love and support from you in the community already. So that's wonderful. And all the way from Australia, which is where I am. I know. Crazy. And you know Jane Green too, right? She was one of your... I do. Yeah. Yeah. Through Because I met her now husband when I was working at FAO Schwartz as a student at university many moons ago in the 80s. The world is a crazy place, which of course is one of the themes of the book, all these coincidences and reasons things happen perhaps and perhaps not and all that. All right. Well, why don't you tell listeners a little bit about the backdrop of the book and how you started interviewing Mira, your mom, like just t- tell the whole thing. So I started interviewing my mother six months before she passed away in 2016 was when I did the interviews. And even though I'm a journalist, uh, and I, I didn't interview her to get material for a book. I did it because she was suffering with cancer. I wanted to distract her from her illness. And I knew she'd been a Holocaust survivor. She'd entered the first of four concentration camps when she was just 17 years old, including Auschwitz. And it wasn't so much that I wanted to know what had happened to her because I had some grasp of that, but rather how did she survive and live with this incredible joy and buoyancy afterwards? She was a really remarkable person. And one of the things she said, which always struck me, was when she was interviewed in in a testimony by the Melbourne Holocaust Museum, they asked her at the end of this testimony where she just 
went through a litany of horrors. So many people around her had been killed. She'd just seen so much brutality. And at the end they said, is there anything you want to add, anything you've learned? And she said, in the Holocaust I learned about the goodness of people. And that became the centre point of this book, how she had this attitude and what her lessons of faith really meant because I felt she had faith in humanity, in the prospect of a better tomorrow, in herself, in the universe. And, you know, I wrote this book during another bleak time in COVID. We were stuck in lockdowns in Melbourne, Australia. This was lockdown number six. And I just really felt that she had lessons that were valuable to share, that the way she lived her life could be a template for others. And there was, as you sort of remarked, there was so much in this that wasn't just about the Holocaust. I wanted to do a really accurate historical record of what happened to her. It was really important that I got that right. But I also wanted to talk about how she lived with such creativity, so much independence. And it's really a love letter to her. It's about mothers and daughters and that bond that cannot be broken, even with death, because I felt so much grief when I was losing her and when she did die that I just went to words to try to write myself out of that. And along that, as you mentioned, there are all these strange things that happened around her that I don't really name or identify properly in the book. It's for the reader to decide. But I really deal with concepts of fate and coincidence and luck and serendipity and try to work out how that all fit in with her. Well, I like that because it leaves you feeling quite hopeful. I feel like when you hear stories like the psychic who predicted you were going to get in the accident and then your mom saying that she was convinced your grandparents had saved your life that day, and it makes me feel personally like less anxious about the thought of dying myself or that all my loved ones who are dying, that, that there is still this huge other piece of it that we just don't understand. And that provides me at least with some comfort. I don't know if it does to you as well. Yeah. And to be honest, I started writing this book. The the reason, even though it had been percolating in my brain for as long as I'd been a writer, which is decades, the catalyst was, was that during lockdown, I kept going for a walk with my neighbor, Diana. And on the very first day of lockdown, she'd received terrible news. Her husband had been diagnosed with an incurable brain tumor. And she kept wanting on these walks to hear about Mira. And I realized it was partly to realize, for her to realize that you could suffer something incredibly beyond challenging, mm-hmm. something so difficult and traumatic that you didn't know if you could get through. But Mira's story showed you that you could not just get through, you could actually flourish. And I think her she was Catholic, she is Catholic. And there was this idea for her too, that the world was bigger than something, just us here and now. And it felt really comforting for her too. My gosh. Do you believe that your grandparents saved you? I know this is such a minor, I mean, not minor. It sounds like it was a horrific injury for you, but um, do you believe in that? Because then the psychic said you were supposed to have died that day. Well, I don't know if the psychic was right, but I believe in my grandparents more than the psychic. (laughs) I look, there was as when that happened, I was in an accident. My mother had had a dream where she knew exactly where the accident had happened. 
And I don't know how to explain that otherwise. And I'm sure there are other reasons behind that. But to me, I guess I became, I guess, a person of faith myself, partly because of my mother's stories. And there was this really pivotal one, as you'll know, that happened towards the end of the war, where she, after eight months, she'd been in these series of camps in uh, Plushov, in Auschwitz, Ravensbrück and Neustadt-Glavy. She was 17 years old when she went in. And by the time at the end of this eight months had passed, she had deteriorated so much. She was so skeletal that she was what they would have called a Muslim. You know, where, where you describe the sort of the walking dead. And the term also indicates when some of the light has lost to, has been lost to, where she had really depleted. She couldn't stand any longer. She was so worn and so thin that she was only lying in the barracks. She couldn't go to the upper plots, the daily roll call, and women would stand in her place trying to call out her name. And she said that every tooth was wobbling in her mouth and her gums were filled with pus. And she'd reached the point where she just didn't know what lay ahead of her. She knew that many of her family members had been killed, including her mother, and she believed her mother was in another realm and she wanted to be with her again. So on this one particular night she went to bed and she prayed and she prayed to God fervently and asked him, please take me in my sleep I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be with my mother again. And that night she had a really vivid dream. And in it, her mother, Genya, came to her and started washing her body with a washcloth with long strokes. And then she had a bowl of soup and she fed her soup spoonful by spoonful. And before the end of the dream, she said to Mira, Mira, I want you to hold on until your birthday. And on your birthday, I'll come and save you. And when my mother woke up in the morning, surprised because she really thought she might die in the night, she really felt like it was a dream like no other. She really felt like Genia had crossed over to be with her because she felt different. Even her body felt slightly more sustained. She had a tiny bit more strength as if she really had been fed. And so she thought to herself, you know, I made a promise to my mother. My mother asked me to hang on until my birthday. My birthday's four days away and I'm going to keep that promise. I know that if the end of the four days comes and goes and nothing's happened, if I'm still here, I'll be able to let myself go and this time it'll be for good. And on the day of her birthday, her 18th birthday, she was finally liberated. And, you know, I grew up with that story. She told it countless times. I still often feel teary when I tell it. It's of course, you can explain it as a massive coincidence, but there were so many things like that that happened to her that I just believe in her. I believe in her faith. I believe in the I believe in the strength of a parent's love for their child. And like you said, I feel hopeful. None of us will be able to prove it, but it's really what guided me. And even even writing this book, I have to say that, I've never written like this in my life. I wrote the first draft in six weeks and it was impossible to believe anything but the fact that my mother's hand was underneath me because those words flew off the page and, you know, writing for 37 years, that had never happened before. Well, 
it's almost like you were transcribing, right? Like you have all these stories and you just had to, it's like a history, not a history, because obviously there's two timelines and, you know, there's your own thoughts and everything, but all of the knowledge that you have of what happened with her even before the war and what her family was like and all these things and the things that you didn't ever find out, but you imagined. And like, so did you, had you already completed all of that research before the six weeks? Like, did you know some of the answers and details? Uh, most of it. I had all the transcripts of her interviews and that included her Holocaust testimonies and my interviews with her, a whole series before she died, where I really did find out not just what her life was like before the war in Czechoslovakia, which you often don't see in Holocaust stories, this from the beginning, her story, this idyllic little village where her family was filled with love and laughter and culture, and that really informed her later on. And then I wanted to talk about afterwards the life she led and what she was like as a parent and what she was like to me. But I actually just started writing and using her transcripts. That was how I began. And every time it kind of felt like I needed a switch or it felt heavy for the reader, I would change it. I would insert something of myself in there or a story that that made sense. And I did that for two reasons. One was I wanted a bit of a break from the linear retelling of my mother's story, but I also wanted to make sure that readers didn't get too desensitised to the Mm -hmm. horrors. Because when you read a Holocaust story, there are one thing after the other after the other. And when you get to enough of them, you finally go, I think your brain switches off. And I wanted to make sure that each thing hit the reader fresh because I don't want a romantic retelling of the Holocaust. I want an actual telling of the Holocaust. So it was so important to me to get the facts straight. There's nothing invented in this book. There's no emotion that I made up. There's no conversation I invented. Everything that she said came from her mouth in the retelling or that her parents said. And if I didn't have that, that didn't go in. And after the six weeks when I wrote the first draft, then over the next two years, I went back. I went to all the Holocaust museums and historians and scholars I could think of. I searched for descendants. I went through every archive that I could and got together all the rest of the information, tried to verify every single thing she said so that nobody could one day point a finger and say, that's not true. Oh my gosh. Well, one one theme in your book is that at first, no one would believe people who had seen it and came back to report it because it was so horrible, right? And people had they all believed and reacted, perhaps things could have unfolded differently. And yet they didn't. I mean, knowing all of this and then sort of applying it to today and what do we believe, what do we hear, how much credence do we give to different stories, you know, all of that, like, where do we take all of this? Like for me, I read it and I'm like, okay, my ears are open. Like anything I hear must be true. Like, da, da, da. you know, where do you take all of this and some of the yeah, just what do we do with all of this now? Well, to me, it really is the idea that history can easily repeat. Mm-hmm. And you see that from the beginning because the Holocaust didn't start with monsters throwing people into pits. Right. It started with stereotypes being perpetuated and hatred being allowed to go unchecked mm-hmm. and 
people, good people even, not standing up for what was right and what they could see but going with often the majority instead. Mm-hmm. And you see that playing out today. You see these stereotypes of Jewish people of, and you see a lack of critical thinking, I think, that happened then. Yep. I think to me my mother really emphasised humanity And so I think that is such a key message in today. It's really important, I think, for everyone not to see everyone else as others. We are all humanity and we all have to remember that and recognise that and not be so quick to put people into one section and label them, I think, to really try and reach an understanding and to lead with not hatred, Mm -hmm. to lead with what the end goal should be, which should be in the current day, we we want eventual peace. We want people to live happy lives, everyone, you know, all innocent people to live happy, fulfilled lives. Well, it's inspiring and, you know, as I said, horrifying. There were some images too, and I have read so much as, you know, most good Jewish girls do, you know, many Hebrew school classes. And then my own interests as I've gotten older and, you know, in college and just all the books that I read and I movies and, you know, everything. But there was one line in here where you talked about the people, you know, when they were thrown into the pits or the invalids and blah, blah, blah. And they were thrown into these burning pits and then covered with dirt and how someone said that the earth would move for days. Oh my gosh. I just can't get it out of my head. It's so awful. Yeah. It's just so awful. Yeah, that was something my mother had been told by her cousin because that is how her mother was murdered. And it is, it's those images. You know, my mother herself worked burying when when it came time for the Nazis to try and liquidate the camps and they were trying to cover up their crimes. They were exhuming the bodies and the people like her were covering it back up and they would find terrible things in those pits left behind. And it's it is still, even though I know her story and even though I knew her, it, I still cannot completely understand that she had that past and that she managed to live the life she did. But that seemed, you know, in Australia we had the largest group of Holocaust group emigrate to Australia outside of Israel per capita. So we had an enormous amount of Holocaust survivors. And I only realised when I was writing this book how many of her clique of her friends were survivors Mm. and you just wouldn't have known it. Like my memories are of these kind of gaggle of people coming over in throngs to our house and playing these very exuberant games games of cards and laughing, the women with their big bouffant hairdos and the men suntanned and (laughs) just so much merriment among them. They were fabulous to be around. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Well, I, I feel like most, I mean, as you well know, um, most children of Holocaust survivors in particular grow up with a, a unique set of tra- traumatic responses and being the keeper of this information and all of that. So have you been in touch with other children of survivors to, to contrast your experience? And I wonder how, you know, the ripples of all these different family trees and different responses then affect you know, the Jewish community yeah. forever. Yeah. Well, I, in, when I lived in Los Angeles, which I did for time, I once went to a meeting where, which were of people like me, those descendants, and I couldn't quite relate to them because first of all, they were quite a bit older. My mother had me later in life and she herself was so young as a survivor. So they were, a dec- you know, two decades older than me. But they really spoke of parents who were really scared, who were overprotective, who mm-hmm. sometimes hoarded food. And that's not all survivors, but that those were those survivors and that I didn't relate to. And nor is she a survivor. I've got lots of friends in Australia whose parents refuse, absolutely refuse to speak about what they went through and can't. If they do, they end up, if they even touch on it, they have nightmares. They're disturbed for weeks and weeks. So the children, of course, don't want to do this to them. And somehow my mother managed to be able to tell her story quite often whenever she was asked without re-traumatising herself. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I, I often feel like rather than intergenerational trauma, I had intergenerational strength or even joy. But it's funny, the other day I did. it did occur to me that some of it bleeds through because I grew up in this really magical kind of house, a crumbling Victorian house that was divided into apartments and we lived in, in one of those apartments. And somebody came through the house recently, which we still have, and said, wow, all these rooms here, these old rooms, you must have, as a child, like imagined all these incredible things It must have planted the seeds for a book. And I thought the only imagination I had about the house was imagining secret doorways in the floor where I could hide and underground tunnels in case anything went wrong. And so I realised how much was informed by that background. But that aside, I don't feel like it really penetrated me. Are you also allergic to hay? I am. Are you? I really am. Yeah, I went to some hay bale kind of, maybe it was a Halloween-y thing once. I just had to leave. I was sneezing so much with my kids. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you don't think about that, the scene with your mother and the, you know, being allergic. My daughter is allergic to everything, and including hay. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, all the sneezing. And she was try- if she was trying to hide. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> anyway. You know, it sort of reminds you, my mother's story and any survivor story, how much luck, how many good turns were required in order to be saved. And that's really true, I think, of any survivor. You survived because you were physically able to, you survived probably because you were mentally able to, and you survived because so many series of things happened all along the way 
that saved you and not just one and not just two and not just ten they were one after the other because statistically it was you know you went into camp and you didn't usually come out even just I feel like you really captured the indecision not indecision but it was impossible to know what to do then even at the beginning like with all of the aunts and uncles and do we go here do we go there and I could just imagine you know, within a family, what do you think? You know, should we report? Should we hide? Should, well, changing their minds, you just don't know. Uh, and it just seems like one decision after another, and then there's your whole life. So what has been the response? Your book has come out during, you know, this crazy time in history now. How has this been for you? How has the anti-Semitism been, if at all, towards you and the book? And, you know, just what has it been like? Well, in the last few pages of the book, I actually write, I don't know if I'll ever see hatred like this in my lifetime. And then, of course, by the time the book was actually out there, that hatred had happened in Australia. It came out three weeks after October the 7th. And at first I thought, I don't know if I can actually even publicise this book because how can we talk about an old horror when there is a fresh horror to deal with every day? It felt really hard. But I, I, I realised once it was out that people wanted to talk about it and I think they have found hope through my mother's story, which has been incredible, that it's been somewhat uplifting for them. But it is difficult. In Australia, it feels really difficult. In Melbourne, it has felt very difficult. And it's hard because my parents came to this country and absolutely loved it from the beginning. But I take heart in the fact that I see so many Australians standing up against anti-Semitism. My mother was saved and helped by not just Jewish people but so many non-Jewish people from a Greek Orthodox priest who converted her to a Belgian officer after the war who fed her when she was really malnourished. And I look at people around me, I see, you know, strangers posting on LinkedIn, I see people in, in Melbourne's community just speaking up And I think the world has changed since the wartime where people are are not just sitting there silently. They are being vocal. I've met with politicians. I've met with real community leaders looking to affect change. In Australia, they've just passed legislation that has helped some of the hate online that people here have been experiencing. And so I like to believe that the world has changed somewhat. But I I see both. I can see if you're online, it seems like a vortex of hate. I think that's a little bit of an echo chamber. I don't think that's what the world feels like. I feel safe in Australia and I do feel ultimately that this is still an incredible place to be a Jewish person. How big, I know you said a lot of people came over second to Israel, but how big is the Jewish community today? Is it still one of the largest percentages? I've never actually looked at that statistic. Oh, percentage, I'm really terrible with numbers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have to look that up. But no, it's a, you know, it is a really vibrant community here. We've got every kind of strata of Judaism from, I go to a modern Orthodox synagogue, but the, and there are plenty, and there are plenty of reform synagogues and plenty of ultra-Orthodox synagogues. I'm going to say, I'm scared to say a number. Because okay, I'm no, like, no, I don't even, I, I was just curious. <laughs> okay, well, what advice do you have for aspiring authors? Well, mine is a real second chance story because I started writing this at 55. 
I published this at 57. And when I wrote it, I had really told myself for years, as much as I wanted to write it, I wasn't sure I could write a book. And I tried, I was reading what other people do. They plan their books. I tried to plan it. That was terrible. I tried to do the kind of Stephen King mode of writing a certain amount every day. That didn't really work for me. But what I realized was I shouldn't have underestimated myself because I thought that my manuscript, if I ever wrote one, would end up in a dusty drawer and never see the light of day. But in fact, within three weeks of writing it, I I got an agent. That was through a bit of serendipity as well because I looked on LinkedIn and thought, maybe I'm already friends with an agent. And I was. And she was, <laughs> born, she was born on my mother's birthday, no less. And then it ended up being part of an eight imprint auction in Australia, being sold. It got bought by HarperCollins in a preempt in America and Canada. It's sold in the UK to uh, Black and White Publishing. It's in South Africa with Pam McMillan. It's about to have its first European uh, translation in Europe. So it's funny because I went to one of those publishers and he said, why haven't you written a book before now? And I said, I, I didn't think I could. And he said, well, who told you that? And I thought, and I said, well, I told me that. And that was really a thing. I think I took on board when I was younger, anyone who said something critical about my more creative writing, I took it on board and just felt like I was okay in a safe place of journalism. And it really wasn't until I got quite desperate in COVID where the world was closing up and articles were closing up that I almost felt that I had no choice, that this was the time. But I just ploughed through. Like it really is putting it on the page and just, you know, doing one thing after the other. Just don't second guess yourself, I think. Well, I don't believe you're the age that you say you are. You look impossibly young. Not just look, seem, feel, speak. (laughs) Um, I don't know. You have this very youthful exuberance to you. So maybe that's... That's the part of your mom, you know, that very helpful. Yeah, she was incredible. She, you know, was nearly 90 when she passed away and barely a wrinkle on her face, I've got to say. Wow. She was young in her, she was always cracking a joke or I still really miss my daily phone calls with her. I'd call her on the way to school, drop off, and she would answer the phone as if I'd just been in Antarctica for six months incommunicado and she'd say, Hello, my darling daughter, Rafi. How are you today? Yeah, she was um, so... One should always be greeted like that in life, I tell you. It's like my puppy dog. <laughs> you know, like, okay. un- unfettered joy at, at seeing you. Oh, that's so wonderful. Well, yeah. that is a good way to live and to treat other people. And there, that's just one of the 8 million lessons in this book about the history of... Eight million plus people that that went so awry and is so unspeakably tragic, and yet you shined a new light on it and told it in a different way, and have inspired so much hope and connection. And it's a book that I think was meant to come out right when it did, and will be a balm for so many people. I really appreciate that. I mean, it was a bit of a. I mean, you're part of this whole dream of me manifesting because I was really hoping to speak to you. And so I feel my publisher always says to me when I get worried, she says, just believe in the magic of mirror. And I have to say, I kind of do. I think that should be on a (laughs) t-shirt. 
Yeah. Believing in the magic of Mira. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing Mira with the rest of us. Thank you so much, Sivi. Okay. Bye, Rochelle. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.